This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Mr. Peavy, just tell us in your own words what happened. Good night, Henry. Good night, he said to me when I left yesterday. And I said, good night, Mr. Taylor. And that was the last I saw of him until this morning. And this morning? I went to Mr. Taylor's apartment, just like every morning. I was going to fix his bath water for him, then give him his dose of medicine. Same routine every morning. Then it would be the same breakfast. Two soft-boiled eggs, toast, and a glass of orange juice. Go on. I opened the door. I opened the door and I saw him lying there, stretched out on the floor, his feet toward me, and the floor all bloody. Oh, Mr. Taylor! I turned and screamed. Oh, oh no! And the landlord came rushing in. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we're continuing our investigation into the sensational murder of William Desmond Taylor. A famous director from the silent movie era. It's been called the first Hollywood murder. And it focused a spotlight on the burgeoning film industry that exposed cracks beneath the glamorous surface. This is episode five of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, and episode two of the investigation into the William Desmond Taylor murder. If you missed any episodes, you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any other podcast directory, and our website, parcast.com. That's parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. As always, if you wish to subscribe to the podcast, go to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. A new Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories episode is released every other Tuesday. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, Parcast, to join in the conversation. And now back to William Desmond Taylor. Over the past decade, the 49-year-old director had worked his way to the top of the Hollywood food chain. Acting in 27 silent films. Directing 59. Working with A-list stars and for major studios. Being voted head of the Motion Picture Directors Association. But recently, 
he had been troubled. Afraid that he was being stalked by mysterious men of unknown motivation. Was it just paranoia? Or did he really have something to fear? Then there were his entangling personal relationships. The star he loved. The young ingenue who loved him. The stage mother protecting her daughter and her turf. Not to mention his professional contacts. The former valet who had burglarized his apartment. The chauffeur with perhaps more allegiance to the studio than to his boss. And now he lay motionless on the floor of his apartment, discovered by his faithful houseman, Henry Peavy. Oh, oh no, no! The San Francisco Bulletin. Police have been bribed, witnesses silenced, evidence suppressed, and a gigantic plot engineered from behind the scenes in film land to defeat the ends of justice in the Taylor Mystery. On the morning of February 2nd, 1922, after Henry Peavy discovered the body of William Desmond Taylor on the floor and screamed for help, a crowd quickly gathered, and a man stepped forward. I'm a doctor. Let me examine him. He approached the body. I'm sorry to say, he's dead. And rendered an opinion. It appears to be a stomach hemorrhage. Death by natural causes. Wait, I thought Taylor was shot. He was. How could the doctor not see that? There are two possible explanations. Gross incompetence. Right, he was a terrible physician. And the second explanation? That the doctor wasn't really a doctor. Well, if he wasn't a doctor, what was he? A theory developed that the doctor might be a plant sent from the studio to buy time for them to make sure there was nothing incriminating at Taylor's home. But if you buy that, then the studio already knew that Taylor was shot and killed. Possibly. So if they knew that at some prior point, why didn't they just break in and clean anything up? Maybe they had. People who buy into this theory claim the discovery of the body by Henry Peavy was staged. And furthermore, what would they find that was incriminating at Taylor's place? We don't know. It's speculation. Well, go ahead and speculate. Love letters, compromising photos, studio documents, cash, jewelry, bootleg liquor, pornographic films. Again, just speculation. Right. We don't know if any of that was there. But here's one thing to keep in mind. Even if the studio had nothing to do with Taylor's death or any prior knowledge of his passing, they still would want their people on the scene to make sure everything was portrayed just so. Because here was one of their prominent directors shot dead. And that was going to be news no matter what. And the powers in the industry would want that news shaped to their advantage for PR purposes. They would want to keep the lid on any possible scandal. Especially in the wake of the Fatty Arbuckle trial, which was going on at the same time. Order in the court! Roscoe Arbuckle, called Fatty, was one of the giants of the silent comedy screen. Figuratively and literally, the portly star had been celebrating his new million-dollar contract with the studio with a three-day blowout at a San Francisco hotel. At the party, a 25-year-old actress named Virginia Rapp was allegedly sexually assaulted and later died. Arbuckle went on trial for manslaughter. It was front-page news. Arbuckle faces gallows! And the coverage exposed Hollywood excess. So the film industry had one black eye and didn't want another. They wanted to present the best story to the public. And if that meant a fake doctor to participate in the cover-up, so be it. Why didn't the detectives on the case locate the so-called doctor and find out what was going on. They wanted to, but couldn't. 
At Taylor's apartment, the doctor disappeared into the crowd and was never seen again. Which makes sense with either theory. If he really was a doctor, he'd want to remain hidden because his diagnosis was a professional embarrassment. Exactly. If he wasn't, then he'd want to keep secret whatever shenanigans were going on. But regardless, either way has the same result. There is a delay before the coroner gets to the apartment, realizes Taylor's been shot, and declares it a crime scene. So whether the delay was fortuitous or planned, it left the home open for a time before it was secured by the police. And in that time, outsiders descended on the apartment. People from the studio. That's right. Men from the studio were seen going through Taylor's belongings and even burning papers. What what are we looking for? You'll know it when you see it. Just toss it on the fire. These photos? Burn it. Burn it all. But they weren't the only ones there. There was also a distraught Mary Miles Minter. The teenage actress who was infatuated with the director. (laughs) I I love him. I, I love him. How can he be gone? Also, there was the popular film comedienne, Mabel Norman. Uh, Henry, I need your help. Respected actress, star of many top-grossing pictures, and now, bizarrely, the headliner at a murder scene. Please, Henry, we need to find any letters of mine that Bill kept. Is there anyone who wasn't at the crime scene? Ironically, at this point, it seems the only ones who weren't there were the police. But they would be there soon enough. And they would start asking tough questions including the toughest one of all. Who was William Desmond Taylor? Los Angeles Express. Motion picture circles in Los Angeles were shocked when the first news of the murder reached them in an extra edition of the Evening Express. Immediately on receipt of the news, work at the studios and on location ceased, and men and women, the palace showing through the grease paint of their makeups, gathered in knots to discuss the tragedy and speculate on what prompted the crime. Many theories were offered, among them revenge fancied wrong, desire for gain and jealousy. When the police showed up to investigate the death of William Desmond Taylor, they found the crime scene so crowded they literally had to clear the area. Okay, everybody out! In Taylor's pockets, investigators found a wallet containing $78 in cash, a pocket watch, a silver cigarette case, a penknife, and a locket containing a picture of Mabel Normand. He was also wearing a two-carat diamond ring. So they ruled out robbery as a motive. However, there are reports that Taylor took a large sum of money from his accountant in the previous days, and that money was never found. But the crime scene was so compromised, that could have been taken after his death. There were also three blonde hairs found on him. Which would point to Mary Miles Minter, because she was a blonde and Mabel Normand was a brunette. So it seems likely Mary had contact with the director the last day of his life, whether she was involved in his death or not. Was a murder weapon ever discovered? No, but they did find a rare 38 caliber bullet. Why rare? There were very few 38 caliber pistols back then. If the police found someone who owned a gun like that, it would be suspicious. So we're looking for a suspect that possibly owns a 38 caliber pistol. Yes. But before the police could start identifying and narrowing down suspects, they had to ask the big question. Who was William Desmond Taylor? And shockingly, as it turns out, he was not William Desmond Taylor. William Desmond Taylor, the upstanding citizen and respected director, 
was actually born in Ireland in 1872 as William Cunningham Dean Tanner. He left home at the age of 18 after a falling out with a father and emigrated to the United States to work at a dude ranch in Kansas. Eventually, he moved to New York, and in 1901, he married Ethel May Harrison. I do. And in 1903, they had a daughter, Daisy. It's a girl. Unable to support himself as an actor, his wealthy father-in-law set him up as a dealer in the antique business. A wife, a daughter, a steady job. He was a pillar of New York society. And then what happened? In 1908, he went out one day to lunch. I'm going to the club, dear. I'll be back later. And never returned. Never? Never. So he abandoned his family without a word? Yes. It wasn't until seven years later, while his wife Ethel and his daughter Daisy were sitting in a theater watching a screening of Captain Alvarez, that they learned the truth. When William Dean Tanner, now calling himself William Desmond Taylor, appeared on screen. Oh my God, there's your father. So he left in 1908 and arrived in Hollywood in 1912. What was he doing in between? Piecing together the missing years, it appears he first went to Alaska. What brings you to these parts, son? Looking for work in a gold mine. You know anyone who needs a hand? So, you're gonna strike it rich. That's what I'm hoping. He settled for a time in Chicago. Sir, I have experience with the mining business. I can keep your books. Then he worked as an actor in a traveling vaudeville troupe. Break a leg, everybody. Let's light up the stage tonight. Bill, don't you ever get tired of all these weeks on the road? It's the energy here in San Francisco. Great crowds. In time, he made his way to Hollywood and completely reinvented himself once again. Did they look at his abandoned wife as a suspect in his death? Because if I were her, I'd want to kill him. Surprisingly, she didn't seem to hold a grudge. And Taylor's daughter, Daisy, contacted him after learning of his true identity, and they had a cordial relationship, remaining in touch until his death. Who does that, abandon their family? It's unusual. But the police were uncovering a lot of secrets of William Desmond Taylor. Who was actually William Dean Tanner. And soon they found themselves asking, could he be keeping one more? Was he gay? Certainly it would fit the evidence, leaving his wife to live on his own. Being engaged for five years without getting married. Having relationships with women like Mabel Normand and Mary Miles Minter. That might have just been platonic. He wouldn't have been the only one in town who was harboring that secret. As actress Louise Brooks once said about Hollywood in the 1920s, We were all marvelously degenerate and happy. (laughs) We were in a world of our own and outsiders didn't intrude. If you believe that Taylor was gay, then it's possible the pink nightgown found at his apartment with the initials MMM for Mary Miles Minter was planted to make him look straight. That seems like a stretch. We know Mary was infatuated with Taylor, and the love letters she wrote to him were real. Whether they were romantically involved or not, she still could have given him the nightgown. True. And all this speculation about whether Taylor was gay or not doesn't get us any closer to solving the crime. A man had been shot, and it was time to start questioning the suspects. The Chicago Herald-Examiner. Members of the sheriff's office made an outright declaration that they were being hindered in the Taylor investigation by an, quote, ironclad conspiracy between police and members of the film colony, unquote, with regard to giving information concerning Taylor. In the wake of William Desmond Taylor's shooting, 
the police began interrogating witnesses. Who at this point were also considered suspects. They started with the butler, Henry Peavy. I went to Mr. Taylor's apartment just like every morning. Who was the one who discovered the body? I opened the door and I saw him lying there, stretched out on the floor, his feet toward me, and the floor all bloody. And moved on to Mabel Norman. Bill and I were dear, dear friends. I already miss him. Who was the last person to see him alive? I left his house last night shortly after 7.30. He was fine. Then there was Mary Miles Minter. Taylor's young protege. He was a wonderful director and a wonderful man. Miss Minter, we found letters from you at the residence. Yes, I I wrote him those letters. I loved him. (laughs) And the inevitable involvement of her mother, Charlotte Shelby. How dare you question my daughter without me present? You know I'm friends with the district attorney. But did these people have anything to do with killing Taylor? I wish I could get the man that did it. I'd go to jail for the rest of my life if I could get to him. I called him Desperate Desmond. He called me Blessed Baby. No! I can't believe he's gone! We had nothing to do with this murder. Stop wasting your time with us and go find the real killer. But finally, there was a break in the case. A neighbor, Faith Cole McLean, came forward. Just tell us what you saw, ma'am. I thought I heard a car backfire. I looked out the window and there was someone walking away from Mr. Taylor's. A man? Well, that's what I thought at first, but the way he was walking was strange. And then it struck me. It was a woman's walk. A woman? Yes, a woman dressed as a man. Finally, the police had a direction to pursue. They were looking for a woman who had dressed as a man. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. And now let's continue the story. The New York Tribune. Evidence supporting the theory that William D. Taylor, murdered film director, was the victim of a hired assassin came to light today with the opening of a widespread investigation of the mystery by District Attorney Thomas Lee Woolwine. The fighting prosecutor, as he is called, personally questioned witness after witness to lay a foundation for the grilling of at least two film stars who will be called before him tomorrow. With the heat turning up on the investigation, a new witness came forward to give a statement, Howard Fellows. Who is Taylor's chauffeur? But why wasn't he questioned earlier? It does seem like a glaring oversight, especially in light of the fact that his testimony established a timeline for the killing. I left the house about 4.30 Wednesday afternoon. Mr. Taylor told me he might be going out in the evening and instructed me to telephone by 7.30. I went to the home of a young lady friend and was there until 7.55. I recall the time accurately because I had it on my mind to call Mr. Taylor and ask him if he would need the car. I called him two or three times before that hour, but received no reply. So the murder occurred sometime after Mabel Norman left between 7.30 and 7.45, 
and before the phone went unanswered at 7.55. Fellows continues. I left the house of my girlfriend at five minutes to eight and drove directly to Mr. Taylor's. I reached there about quarter past eight. There was a light in the living room. I was surprised that Mr. Taylor should be home and not have answered the telephone. I rang the doorbell. Silence. I rang again. Still, no response. I must have rung three or four times. Fellows went on to say that he believed Taylor was already dead at the time he was ringing the doorbell. Which makes sense. But his timeline is so precise and locks in the murder to a 10-minute window. Any reason you would be suspicious? First of all, he didn't come forward until later. Second, as we mentioned previously, Howard's brother Harry worked for Paramount Studios. Third, an observer of the crime scene the next day noticed the drapes were pulled up and that he could see the victim from outside. Could Howard have come by that night, seen the dead body, and notified the studio instead of the police? I suppose it's possible. And then the studio sends someone to search and sanitize the apartment? Then Howard comes forward and tells his story, which locks the murder into 7.55, when maybe it happened later. But that has to do more with a cover-up than the crime. True, but it goes a step further. Fellows also claimed he was the person Faith McLean saw around the apartment that night. But she clearly thought it was a woman dressed as a man. Was Fellows trying to cover for somebody? Was he trying to diminish Faith McLean's testimony? Still, the police weren't ready to dismiss that theory yet. That the killer could have been a woman dressed as a man. So they brought in Charlotte Shelby for more questioning. Mrs. Shelby, where were you on the night of February 1st? I already told you I was with Mr. Stockdale. You can check with him. Did your daughter have a relationship with Mr. Taylor? Of course. She worked with him. But it went beyond that. They were friends. Please. She's been friends with many directors, and none of them have been shot. You were jealous, right? He had a hold on her. You were losing your grip. Don't be silly. You were being cut out of the picture. She was turning 18, and you couldn't stand it. So you grabbed a gun and took care of the problem. I'm reading the papers the same as you, Detective. It says William Taylor was killed by an assassin. Do I look like an assassin to you? Despite her steadfast denials, suspicion still was strong against Charlotte Shelby. With very little progress being made, and so much corruption with the Los Angeles Police Department, a reporter named Florabelle Muir, the Hollywood correspondent for the New York Daily News, decided to take matters into her own hands. She was convinced the murderer was Henry Peavy and wanted to prove it. She offered the valet $10 to show her Taylor's cemetery plot. Show the way, Henry. Where is Bill buried? It's right over here. Florabelle had secretly arranged for a Confederate dressed up in a sheet to jump out behind William's grave and scare Henry. I am the ghost of William Desmond Taylor. You murdered me. Confess, Peavy. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Peavy? You shot me. Confess. <laughs> Henry, now is the time to come clean. He doesn't sound anything like Mr. Taylor. Apparently, Florabelle forgot about Taylor's British accent. Did you set this up, Mrs. Muir? Shame on you. Then he roundly cursed the reporter and the so-called ghost. I hope he at least got his ten bucks from her. Interesting side note, 
The man Floribel recruited for a stunt was a mobster from Chicago named Albert Weinshank, who was later killed in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Well, we know that was ordered by Al Capone, but who was behind this killing? Sadly, just like the Floribel playing amateur detective, the police were at a loss. Well, maybe this had to do with the police being corrupt. Great point. At this time, the Los Angeles Police Department and the city itself was rife with corruption. There were lots of officers and officials on the take. The LAPD went through three different chiefs alone in the calendar year 1922, and one of them, James Everington, said, I never actually ran the LAPD, because an honest man can't do that. A crook can be chief, though, if he's clever enough not to get caught. That's not to say there's clear evidence of corruption in this case. But there have always been questions about whether the police investigation was compromised. From the call for an independent investigation by the DA. To the detective who later told a writer. We were doing all right, and then before a week was out, we got the word to lay off. But the police and the district attorney weren't the only ones investigating. There was also the press. Dozens of journalists were on the scene, reporting, interviewing, and in some cases, like Floribel, outright fabricating to create sensational stories and sell papers. But even with that saturation coverage, no one was closer to solving the case. Until now. Because coming up, we let you know who killed William Desmond Taylor. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now back to the story. The New York Morning Telegraph. In their efforts, the police and D.A. Woolwine's forces have sent several reputable actresses into retirement, suffering from nervous prostration, and have cast some slight suspicion on a few persons who cannot possibly kill another. The time has come for these Los Angeles sleuths and Woolwine and his actors to get off the job and devote their time to whatever business may be at hand. Skilled detectives should take over the case and follow it to the end. As we are clearly the most skilled detectives working on this case, it's time for us to narrow down our list of suspects. What about Edward Sands, the former houseman? A burglar, yes. A pest, no question. But a murderer, the evidence isn't there. I agree. Sands is described by contemporaries as a big galoot. Taylor didn't seem afraid of him, only annoyed. And what does Sands gain by killing Taylor? Nothing I can see. I know there's speculation that Sands was in love with Taylor and felt rejected, but would he wait six months, rob Taylor a couple times, and then all of a sudden decide to kill him? I'm not buying it. What about Mabel Norman's drug dealers getting revenge for Taylor talking to prosecutors about cracking down on them? Again, I'm having a tough time buying it. It's too indirect. Do we know for sure Taylor was pressuring prosecutors? And if he was, were prosecutors actually doing something about it? And finally, would the drug dealers be so affected that they would trace that back to Taylor and think eliminating him was the solution? You're right. The logic does seem convoluted. What about Mabel Normand herself? That seems like even more of a stretch. She had a good relationship with Taylor. Did she maybe feel threatened by Mary Miles Minter? Possibly. But how does that lead to murder? Not to mention, everyone seems to accept that she drove away the night in question and Taylor was still alive. But what about Mary Miles Minter or her mother, Charlotte Shelby? Now we're getting somewhere. There were the blonde hairs on Taylor's body. He kept his suit impeccably groomed. That implies he saw Mary the night of his death. So Mary did it. I think Charlotte did it. First, 
there's the murder weapon. I didn't think it was recovered. It emerged later that Charlotte Shelby had an unusual 38 caliber pistol, and Taylor was killed by a 38 caliber bullet. Aha! As we mentioned earlier, but if this pistol was so unusual and rare, why didn't the police pursue it at the time? Either incompetence or corruption. But when the fact became public, Shelby supposedly threw the gun into the Louisiana Bayou. Then there's Mary Miles Minter's unpublished memoir, in which she admitted she and her mother were at the bungalow the night of the murder. Placing them at the scene and explaining the blonde hairs. And Shelby had previously threatened the life of another director who made a pass at her daughter. So that's the motive. Plus, famous director King Vidor told police that Mary Miles Minter ambiguously admitted to him that her mother shot Taylor after finding her at his apartment. The key word there is ambiguously. And lots of people have doubts about that King Vidor account. But it's easy to imagine the scene. I knew it! Get your dirty paws off my daughter! It's not what you think. Don't, Mother! Let's all settle down. Let me pour you a drink and we can talk. Taylor turns his back to Shelby. Don't you tell me what to do! But wait! All that happened. Mary showing up, meeting with Taylor, her mother catching her there, and the killing in the 10-minute window established by Howard Fellows? I think Fellows moved up the time of the crime to put more suspicion on the studio's aging star, Mabel Normand, and less on the studio's newer star, Mary Miles Minter. Well, your version is certainly dramatic. And do you have a better explanation? I think I do. October 21st, 1964. A man in Hollywood is going to check in on his mother. He finds her at the neighbor's house. Raphael, back here. The reclusive old woman who lived there is in agony. My my chest hurts, and there's a pain in my arm. Apparently, she's having a heart attack. I need a priest. I have to confess my sins. The woman had just converted to Roman Catholicism and was concerned about the cleansing of her soul. Don't worry. The ambulance will be here soon. I, I need to confess. Listen to me. I was a silent film actress when I was young. I committed a great crime. I, I sh- shot and killed William Desmond Taylor. Just relax. Did you hear me? I shot and killed William Desmond Taylor. May God have mercy on me. And the woman who made that startling confession, then going by the name of Pat Lewis, was Margaret Gibby Gibson the silent film actress who worked with William Taylor. Once again, in a case where so many people turned out to be different than they appeared, the kindly old lady next door turned out to be the murderer. Well, that's all well and good, but can we trust this account? You say this happened in 1964, but the man who witnessed it, Raphael Long, didn't come forward until 35 years later in 1999. Because the name William Desmond Taylor meant nothing to him in 1964, And the thought that this nice old lady could just take a gun and shoot someone seemed preposterous to him. So he just dismissed it as the ravings of a woman in agony on the verge of death. And why shouldn't we do the same? Because it makes sense. The reason Margaret Gibson would confess to the murder is because she actually committed the murder. And why wouldn't Raphael remember the scene? If someone made a deathbed confession to you, I'm sure you'd remember it for the rest of your life. I guess... And then there's one more thing. 
Raphael said his mother told him later that she was once with Gibson watching a TV program that mentioned the William Desmond Taylor murder and Gibson became agitated. I thought that was long forgotten. Get this nonsense off the TV. Okay, but why would Gibson, who wasn't among the official suspects, want to kill Taylor? I admit that motive is the weakest link of the case against Gibson, but there are a couple of possibilities. Such as? Perhaps it wasn't even that complicated. Eliza LeMay, a director and acting teacher, told the Dallas Times-Herald a week after Taylor died that... A motion picture director can break as well as make an actor. And I believe William Desmond Taylor was killed by some actor or actress whom he recently refused to place in a production. So Taylor was killed just because he wouldn't cast Gibson? Sure, it seems disappointing given all the juicier theories, but that doesn't make it less valid. And there is at least some circumstantial evidence in that regard. What? After Taylor was killed, Margaret Gibson appeared in four movies for Paramount Studios. The studio where Taylor worked. Including one film with Mary Miles Minter. Of course, there is a more sinister spin. Maybe the roles from Paramount were to keep her quiet. Remember, as we said, the Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle trial was going on at the same time, and Hollywood was under incredible scrutiny. Maybe Gibson was blackmailing Taylor. I still like Charlotte Shelby. I knew you would. But let's open it up to the listeners. Take our Facebook poll. Do you think the murderer was Charlotte Shelby? Or was it Margaret Gibson? Or maybe you think it was someone else. Could you be the one to solve the mystery that still baffles us almost a century later? The New York Herald. A dramatic clash between the police and the sheriff of Los Angeles is the newest feature in the cinema murder mystery. The sheriff formally charges the police authorities with succumbing to the influence brought to bear by powerful interest connected with the cinema industry. For the characters involved in the William Desmond Taylor saga, outside of the director himself, their lives would end with a whimper instead of a bang. Edward Sands was never seen or heard from again. Henry Peavy died of syphilis in 1931, and Mary Miles Minter would end up retiring from acting at the ripe old age of 21. Ah, the life of a child actress. She then sued her mother for an accounting of the money she had made during her screen career. Also typical of a child actress. But she and her mother eventually reconciled. They lived together in Santa Monica. Charlotte Shelby died in 1957. Mary lived until she was 82. She passed away in 1984, her career long forgotten. Her neighbors shocked to find out she was once a giant star. As for Hollywood itself, the William Desmond Taylor case, along with the Fatty Arbuckle trial, and scandals involving Wallace Reed, Jack Pickford, and Olive Thomas marked the end of an era. It seems appropriate that when the writers of Sunset Boulevard, a movie about a Hollywood murder set across a backdrop of silent films, wanted to evoke that bygone era, they chose the name Norma Desmond. Norma from Mabel Normand. And Desmond from William Desmond Taylor. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. As for Mabel Normand herself, she lived the rest of her life under a cloud. Suspected of being involved in the death of the man she loved. Her career slowed and reputation tarnished. She would go on to act in more films, but her star was permanently dimmed. She also battled health issues. Still, the murder was never far from her mind. According to a nurse, while Mabel Norman lay dying of tuberculosis in 1930, she looked up and said, 
Do you think God is going to let me die and not tell me who killed Bill Taylor? New York Times, it's still a hot chase on a very cold trail for a Hollywood killer. Over nine decades later, the mystery of who murdered William Desmond Taylor remains. But the case, with its strange twists and turns, still fascinates. Could Taylor have ever imagined that with all the Hollywood stories he worked to fashion for audiences, the one that still intrigues us is his own. Join us on Tuesday, July 12th, as we travel to Texarkana in the days after World War II. When a simple trip to a lover's lane... (laughs) Why are we stopping here, handsome? ...ends up in a date with death. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening. And hope you'll join us again. If you liked what you've heard, tell your friends. New episodes come out every other Tuesday. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, digitally engineered by Ron Shapiro, and written by Stephen DeLello. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Janice Liebhart, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Paulson, and Vanessa Richardson.